Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day that place is called Heres Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and his entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. The second reading is on page 555, it's Psalm 24. That's page 555, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? 
who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Well, good evening. Do keep Psalm 24 open in front of you. We're going to be looking at that together for the next few minutes. And um, uh, let me pray for the Lord's help as we come to look at it. Our Lord God, the first psalm says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Our Lord God, this evening as we come to look at these words of yours in Psalm 24, we pray that you might help me to speak clearly and to explain the passage as I should and help us all to delight in the word that you've given us, to dwell on it, to meditate on it, to chew on it, and to be changed by it, that we might know your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, uh, how do you feel about the idea of meeting God? How do you feel about the idea of meeting God face to face? Uh, The Bible says that every one of us will meet God at the end of our lives, and um, In my experience, there are really two poles in terms of how people feel about that. Um, For some, the idea of meeting God is something that they feel um, comfortable about, uh, maybe um, maybe casual even, and it's not something that gives them great anxiety or worry. Um, It's just um, uh, a familiar idea, really. Uh, Think of a friend called Nick, uh, who's looking into the Christian faith a few years ago. We were chatting about some of these sorts of issues, the idea of meeting God, uh, and Nick said, well, Andy, I've not, um, I'm not a perfect person, but I have lived a decent life, and, and I'm sure that if God's loving, he would love to um, welcome someone like me into heaven. Uh, sort of a, a casual thought, really. Uh, maybe you know that um, famous quote by the German poet who was asked on his deathbed, do you think God will forgive you for your sins? And he said, of course he'll forgive me. After all, that's his job. And maybe that's something that, um, for some of us, um, that's, um, uh, that's something that resonates with us. Actually, the idea of um, meeting God isn't something that, that really troubles us particularly. Uh, on the other hand, and at the other extreme, uh, I've met a number of people for whom the idea of meeting God is something they feel deeply uneasy and anxious about. Uh, Another famous German, the reformer Martin Luther, in his early life was famously terrified of God. A famous occasion when he was uh, newly made a monk and he was taking his first communion and he was struck silent and just didn't know what to do. So terrified was he by the thought that um, someone as small and, uh, and sinful as him 
would have to meet God face to face. And maybe we wouldn't put it in those sorts of terms, but I wonder if for some of us here, that's something that we resonate with, that we sympathize with. Uh, Maybe when you think about meeting God, actually you do feel a certain amount of anxiety. Maybe, um, Maybe your conscience feels weighed down by things, and there are things you're uneasy about, and you just think, um, Meeting God is something that you certainly wouldn't feel confident about this evening. I wonder how you'd feel. Uh, Psalm 24 is all about meeting God. Uh, It's a song that looks back almost certainly on that event that we read about from 2 Samuel. Uh, The ark being brought up into Jerusalem. King David had duffed up the Philistines. Um, He'd finally um, defeated the Jebusites. He'd captured Jerusalem. And he's bringing the ark of the covenant up into the city. And it's a moment of great rejoicing because the ark represents God's presence with the people. For the ark to be there on the temple mount in Jerusalem is to say that God is with the people, that they can meet him, that they can know him face to face, as it were. And Psalm 24 is really a a song that rejoices and prepares people for the idea of meeting God. And so what do we learn about this God that the Bible says that we will meet? Well, the first thing we see in this psalm is that the Lord is a universal king. The Lord is a universal king. Look at verse 1 with me for a moment. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now, um, I'm not... um, I'm not a particularly creative person. Um, I do quite enjoy building an Ikea flat pack because, um, sad I know, but it's a nice feeling, isn't it, when you look at that completed set of bookcases or whatever it is and you think, um, I I built that with my own hands. I put that together. I mean, it may just be that you're here this evening and you're more creative than I am and perhaps you can think of something um, more detailed you've made with your hands or some piece of music, some poem or um, novel or... um, a piece of art that you have made yourself and can stand back from and say, I made that. And you see, the point that Psalm 24 makes at the very beginning is that the Lord made everything, the universe, the world that we live in, and so it belongs to him. He made it, and so he owns it. Just think for a moment about the generosity of our creator. Um, Not only is this the only planet in our solar system capable of sustaining life, um, it's been described as the Goldilocks planet because it's just the right distance from the sun, not too hot, not too cold. Um, It also has everything that we need, that delicate balance of atmospheric gases, water and land that we need. Um, one um, scientist has estimated that the odds of a world like ours even existing are something like one in 130 billion. And yet that's not it. That's not all, is it? The generosity of our creator is seen in the breathtaking beauty of the world that we live in because it's not just a world capable of sustaining life, is it? It's a world with sunsets over the peaks, and stars in the night sky, a world with summer flowers, autumn leaves, and crunchy snow under your feet, hopefully in December. It's a world with good coffee, good food, and good friends. And the point that Psalm 24 makes to start 
to start off with is that the God we meet in the Bible, the God who we will meet one day at the end of our lives, is the one who made everything and sustains it. Just look down at verse 2 with me for a moment. He founded it upon the seas. And the world that we live in is, um, is two-thirds water, isn't it? And yet there is land for us to live on. But more than that, he established it upon the waters. And that word, um, established it, it's a sort of um, an ongoing word. Um, other translations have, he continues to maintain it. That's the idea there. Just, um, just think about that last breath that you breathed in. Maybe you'd like to breathe out now. Well, um, the reason that you could take that breath is because the Lord God is sustaining your life today. He's sustaining that delicate balance of gases that are required for our atmosphere. He's sustaining the beauty and the glory of our creation. He made it, and it belongs to him. Now, two implications of that for us. And the first one is that the claim of um, Christianity, the claim of Psalm 24, is specific. And verse one, the earth is the Lord's. If you were here last week, we were, we were thinking about how this is not a title for God. It's a personal name, Lord, in capitals. This is not God in general. This is not God as I like to think of him or the God of all religions. No, this is the God revealed in the Bible, the God of Israel in the Old Testament, the God who made himself known in Jesus Christ. And it's a specific claim in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. This God, the God who revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, made our world. Um, But it's also a universal claim. He made it, and so he owns it. And what did he make, and what does he own? Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, all the people and all the produce, all the individuals and all of the stuff belongs to God, says Psalm 24. It's easy to fall into thinking that God is um, the God of a particular part of the world, you know, maybe um, the God of the English or, um, God forbid, the God of the Americans or something like that. But here, God is the God of the whole world, There's nowhere in the world where God is a foreigner and no person over whom he is not their creator and their owner. The Lord made everyone. Sometimes it's tempting, isn't it, to to think that I can speak to my neighbor who doesn't really believe anything about anything about Jesus, but to feel more awkward about talking to the follower of another religion from another country or culture. But there's nowhere that God is a foreigner No person over which the Lord is not their creator and owner. And not just God of the people, but the Lord is um, the one who owns all of the produce as well. Just think for a moment about um, the things that you own. Your, um, Your house. Uh, There may be a document that says your house belongs to you and you have the freehold but really you're just a tenant there, just a leaseholder, because it belongs to God. The money in your bank account may have your name on it, but you're actually a trustee. It belongs to God. You see, God made everything, 
and it belongs to him. And that means that the things that we handle in this world, the things that, um, that go through your accounts at work or your personal accounts, well, they matter immensely. We should be very careful with them because they belong to God. And it means we're accountable to him for what we do with the things he's given us to look after. Uh, the Lord alone is the one to be served and worshipped and honoured with the things that we have. Um, in the 1970s, uh, a um, radical um, playwright and poet called Heathcote Williams, I don't know if you'll have heard of him, but he, um, he declared his flat in Notting Hill to be an independent republic, uh, the Republic of Freestonia, in fact. Uh, he printed his own passports. Um, he declared that the subjects of his flat were no longer subject to UK law or taxes. And um, he even applied to join the United Nations, which is quite bold, I think. But just think for a moment. In a world that God has made, where everything and everyone belongs to him, we might choose to say that we don't belong to God and that we're not accountable to him. But if we did that, we'd be denying reality, wouldn't we? I bet that um, the tax man had something to say about the independent Republic of Fristonia and probably didn't see it as quite so independent. And to claim that we're independent of the Lord, the God of the Bible, of Jesus Christ, or, or to follow some other God or religion is to deny reality because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's the universal king and so every person in our world is accountable to him. Second thing we see, next section of the psalm, we see that the Lord is the holy king. The Lord is the holy king. Verse three, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Um, we've zoomed in, we were at the wide angle, the whole world, and now we've zoomed in on one particular hill, the, um, the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord, and um, the ark is to go up to the hill, to that place, but we're told that it is, verse 3, a holy place. Now, um, holiness speaks of God's goodness, his moral purity, the fact that he is utterly set apart from any evil, and we had the reading about what happened, didn't we? We see something of the, um, the terrifying holiness of God in that account. The ark is on its way into Jerusalem. The oxen slips. The man Uzzah reaches out, grabs the ark, and he's struck dead. Because an unholy person cannot come into contact with the holy God. And so David rightly asks the question in verse 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can go up with the Ark of the Covenant when it is so holy and the place it is going to is so holy? And the answer comes in verse 4, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, or swear by what is false. Now, it's, um, it, it's like an operating theatre, this picture. You know, um, 
the Royal Hallamshire just up the road from here. And if I've, um, if I've been out in the garden and my shoes are muddy and um, I've, been, um, I've been getting dirty, trimming the hedges and all the rest of it, and then I take myself down the road to the Royal Hallamshire and I try to get into one of the operating theatres, uh, you'll bet I won't get very far, will I? I can't, I can't come in... Actually, you've seen them probably on TV, if not because you work there. The, um, the detail that those guys go into, scrubbing their hands and getting, getting all the gear on, getting clean to go into that environment. And that is the picture here. The one who will go in to God, the one who can meet God and see him face to face on the hill of the Lord, has to be utterly clean and completely pure. But of course, it's a picture of moral purity, isn't it? Clean hands speaks of the things that we do in our lives, the things that we've done, our work, our leisure, the things that we've done underhandedly. But more than just the things we've done, God can see our hearts. He can see our motives and intentions, our thoughts and inner desires. That, um, that good thing that you did, that everyone applauded you for, God knows what really motivated you, both good and bad, that complex mixture of motivations in our hearts. God sees all of it. God gets to the heart of the matter. And the sort of person he's looking for is one who is unswervingly loyal who doesn't lift up their soul to an idol. They've never treated anything in the world like it belonged to them and not to God. And who never swears by what is false. Someone who's never lied. Never said something unkind or untrue about another person. This is what God is like. God is a holy God, a good God, a God who cannot stand before any moral impurity. I mean, just, um, just imagine it for a moment. What would it be like to have never done anything wrong in your life? To have nothing in the past that you're ashamed of, to have never done anything with your hands that you wish you hadn't, to have never looked at anything with your eyes that you wished you hadn't, or gone somewhere with your feet and thought, I wish I had never gone there. And what would it be like to have never had an unclean thought, to have never lied, to have never been bitter? to have never refused to forgive someone, to have never put myself forward in conversation and tried to make myself the center of attention and reflect the glory onto me, uh, to have never put someone down to make myself feel better, or to have never been unkind. And those are just the negative things. What about the positive side of it? What would it be like to have always been kind, always been loving, always have put yourself out for other people, never have been too tired or too stressed or have had too much on, but always to have gone the extra mile, never to have had an unkind thought, always to have been charitable, never to have been um, unloving to another person, never to have said an unkind word, but always to have built people up, always to have spoken the truth, even when it cost me, to my very self. You can imagine what it would be like to be that sort of person. And yet God says in Psalm 24 that only someone like that can stand before him. Someone like that, verse 5, will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God. But if we're not like that, 
And let's take a moment and be honest, we're not like that, are we? Then to walk into the presence of God, to meet him face to face, well, it would be safer to walk into a nuclear reactor or a burning building. The Lord is a holy king, and so we cannot go into him. We cannot meet him face to face and live. For us, it, it would be like Uzzah, who reached out and was destroyed to see God. It's a sober sentiment, but there is hope in this stanza. Do you notice the last word of verse 6 is Jacob? Now, I don't know if you know the book of Genesis at all. The sort of second half of Genesis is, is following Jacob and his family. And if there's one thing that you can pick up pretty quickly about Jacob, it's that he is not a man with clean hands and a pure heart. He certainly is a man who swore falsely. You know, Jacob's name means trickster. And if there's one thing that's clear over and over again, it's that Jacob was a big fat liar. And yet here we're told that the God whose face we seek is the God of big fat liars. How do we square that with the holiness of this God? Well, that brings us to the final section of the psalm where we see that the Lord is a victorious king. The Lord is a victorious king. And you need to picture the scene here where... Um, We're brought, um, we're zoomed in from the Temple Mount right down to the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And the ark is being brought to the gate and the king is there in victory. The Philistines have been duffed up and the Jebusites have been defeated. And um, the gate is like one of those sort of portcullises on a castle. You know, it has to be lifted up with ropes from the inside. And the, the, the cry comes from um, the victory party on the outside. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The cry comes from inside. Who is this king of glory? And the reply comes. But it's not David. It's not a man. No, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Again, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Who is it who can have the gates thrown open and can bring the ark of God's presence up and among the people. Well, Psalm 24 says it's not a man, but the Lord himself, that he is the victorious king. He is the one who fought for his people, and he is the one who opens the doors that people can see him face to face. And, well, if you've read much of the New Testament, you will have seen something of this, um, this God who fights for his people, this God strong and mighty in battle. Uh, when God became man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he took on a human nature, he lived with clean hands and a pure heart. 
I wonder who knows you best in the world. Can you just think of who it is? Who knows you better than anyone else? Uh, Maybe your spouse, a friend, a family member, someone like that who just knows you better than anyone. Is it not a remarkable thing that the people who who knew Jesus best, who'd um, uh, lived with him for three years, who'd seen his uh, every word and deed, they pointed to him and they said, this man is perfect. He never did anything wrong. You would need to talk to my wife for, I think, five minutes tops to know that I am not a perfect person. Probably much less than that, but I'm going to be charitable and say that it would take at least five minutes to get that out of her. And I wonder how long it would take for the person who knows you best. But the people who knew Jesus best, this man is perfect, clean hands and a pure heart, never disloyal to God, never told a lie, never said an unkind word. Is that not a remarkable thing? And that one who is both God and man, he fought for us. He went to a cross and laid down his life that the doors might be open to us. Uh, some friends of mine have, uh, have a little, uh, sorry, had a little toddler. He's actually, he's an adult now, so, um, but a little toddler called Freddy. This isn't one of those stories about my kids where I've changed the names or whatever. Um, uh, uh, a little boy called Freddy, and mum said to Freddy in no uncertain terms that he was not to touch the paint in mum and dad's bedroom. But the luscious, oozing, apricot-coloured paint was just... It was just too much for Freddy. And so he took the paintbrush and he began to redecorate the chest of drawers in mum and dad's room. And as he did this, great, great dollops of apricot paint landed all over Freddy and all over the carpet and everywhere, really. And now, Freddy was no fool. He saw what was going on. And so he went to the ensuite to fetch water to clean up the mess that he's made. Would you believe it? It only made things worse when he did that. And it was just as he was cleaning things up with the water from the bathroom that he heard his mother's footsteps coming up the stairs. Now, Freddie did what I think we would all do under these circumstances, which is that he ran and hid. And his mum was greeted as she came up the stairs with the the sight of um, just a a set of apricot-coloured footprints leading to the cupboard where Freddie was hiding. Now, look, uh, it's a silly story. Freddie is just a child, and it's one of those things you laugh about late. Well, I laugh about later anyway. But um, just think for a moment. What Freddie did, his actions, the paint all over him, well, it bore witness to his attitude towards his mother, didn't it? Uh, he disobeyed what she'd said to him. He, he'd rebelled against her authority. He'd said no to having her over him and had gone ahead and done it. Uh, The paint all over him and all over the floor spoke of his attitude of rebellion towards her. And when we look at our own lives and we see the things that we've done wrong, it's like um, those great dollops of paint all over us. You know, that, that lie that I told, because it just made things easier with the clients at work. The time I said an unkind word to someone, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the thing that I did that I wish I could take back, It's like my life is covered by the evidence of the ways that I've said to God, I don't want you to be God over me. Unclean hands and an impure heart. 
as Freddie hid there in the cupboards and um, faced the um, right anger of his mother, and I think if you're a parent here, you'll agree, there was right anger there. If only there was one who could take his place. If only there was one who could take the paint-spattered clothes from him and stand in his place and face the anger for him. And when the Lord Jesus went to the cross to fight for us, that is precisely what he did. It's like he took my my sin-stained life, my unclean hands, my impure heart on himself, and he gave me his righteous life. And the right anger of God fell on him instead of me. And he fought for me in that way. He died for our sins in our place. But more than that, he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, the gates of heaven were thrown open to anyone who comes to him and says, I want your death to be for me. Uh, The temple gates were only ever a, a picture, a scale model the temple was of the reality in heaven, the book of Hebrews tells us. And when Jesus ascended to be with the Father, it was like the gates of heaven were thrown open to anyone who comes to him and says, I want you to be my king and I want your death to be for me. I want you to be the king who fought for me and who won. And so Psalm 24 is a sobering psalm, but it's a psalm of great joy. Uh, My experience is that Christians often um, go backwards and forwards between those two poles when we think of meeting God. You know, things are going quite well, and um, I feel quite confident and comfortable about the idea of meeting God, but but then I do something wrong, and I'm ashamed, and, and suddenly I start to have doubts and concerns about the idea of drawing near to God. And Psalm 24 shows us that we can never take meeting God face to face lightly, because he is the universal king, a holy king. But if you trust in Christ, you can do it with the greatest confidence and joy, because Christ fought for you, and he won. Is that not a joyful, joyful thing? Well, look, as I close, I I just want to say a couple of things by way of application, if that's okay. Um, I I spoke on this passage this morning at another parish. It was was a great joy to be invited to to go somewhere else and uh, and to um, speak on this same passage to them. Um, I was chatting to a guy afterwards over coffee, and he said to me, um, Andy, I just... um, I, I, I was really interested to hear what you have to say, but I just don't think I'm the sort of person that God could forgive. You know, on that day, I, I'm pretty certain I'm not the sort of person he would want in his kingdom. And, um, and that's made me want to say again to you this evening, as clearly as I can by way of application, no one deserves to be welcomed in. There is no one who can meet God face to face on their own merits and stand. We will be destroyed. It would be safer to walk into a nuclear reactor. We'll be cast out from him for eternity on our own merit. But everyone, everyone, not a certain kind of person, everyone 
who comes to Jesus and says, I want you to be my king and I want your death, that victory to be for me, will be welcomed in because the gates of heaven have been thrown open. Everyone. And so I'd like to say to you what I said to him this morning. If you haven't done that, if you haven't prayed a prayer like that to the Lord Jesus Christ, what's stopping you this evening? Uh, You might say, uh, I need more evidence, I need to think about it more, and that's fine, I'd love to chat to you about that. But I'd like to ask you to think about that this evening. What's stopping you from having this king as your king? But then secondly, just by way of application, let me say, um, if you're a Christian here today, um, uh, because of Jesus, because of this victorious king, um, God throws open the doors wherever we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. Uh, The God who fought for us on the cross is the God who gives us his spirit and fights for us and with us as we fight to live clean and holy lives now. Uh, let me put it like this. Some of you will have been lucky enough to buy your own house. And um, the day you exchange and the day that you complete and you get the keys and everything, you get to move into the house and it's yours. I mean, actually it's God's, but it's yours. And um, you get to live there and tell people that it's your house. But on the day that you move in, it doesn't look much like it's yours, does it? It's still got that appalling pink bathroom that the last owners had, and they've taken all the carpets with them. The Lord only knows what they'll do with those. And um, there's that sort of giant um, you know, Tex-Mex mural on the sitting room wall, and it doesn't look like your house. But over the years, as you live there, you begin to make changes and it begins to look more like you. It begins to reflect your character more. And you see, the king who fought for us, who bought us for himself, is also the king who gives us his spirit and fights for us to make us reflect his character of holiness more and more. And is that not a beautiful thing? To have a victorious warrior king who fights for you today. This king that we'll meet, he's a universal and a holy king, but a victorious king, and that is a joyful thing, is it not? Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing his praises. We're going to rejoice that the Lord is king. But before we do that, let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Our Lord God, we thank you that you fought for us that you were pure for us, that you died for us and rose and ascended for us, that we might praise you and meet you face to face with confident joy. Amen.